You're listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. And I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. In this first season of Superpower Curiosity, we're exploring divisiveness and how to get beyond it. This is also the subject of Richard's recent book. It's a freaking mess, how to thrive in divisive times. Last episode was all about divisive influences in the media. And in this episode, Richard discusses how to protect yourself from divisive influences in party politics in an excerpt from It's a Freaking Mess. Let's jump right in. A political party in a democratic country is a platform on which to present and argue a particular point of view, which the public can then review, determining their vote based on an appraisal of the policies presented. Ha ha. Everyone knows things don't usually work quite like this. In different countries, in different centuries, politicians have recognised that the key to public support is to approach the public through the emotional body. That is, what the public feels strongly about. Gaining the interest of the emotional body is not only more effective than arguing intellectually. It recognises the fact that the emotional body often directs the intellect. It's useful, fun and freeing to recognise the games politicians play to snag their quarry. It frees us from getting caught in a partisan, adrenaline-laden battle. It can save us from getting dragged down into anger or hatred. With greater emotional freedom, we're better able to view policies that might be more helpful for us, for our country, and for posterity. Here, then, are some examples of the games politicians play to get votes. Votes by otherizing. In Chapter 2, I spoke of how politicians can gain adherence through otherizing fomenting disapproval, anger, outrage, even hatred against the other side or against a minority group with limited voting power. The great thing about looking through this lens is that it gives us a better chance to make a more informed choice. Here are four common diagnostic clues to demonstrate that a politician, or anyone else, is peddling otherization. Otherizing clue number one overt hostility. Sometimes politicians shout invective or screw up their faces in obvious expressions of anger, disgust, or blame. Emotions are highly contagious. If a politician raises his voice against others, it is easy to get the crowd into a similar mood. If you see old footage of Hitler screaming at Nazi party rallies, You don't have to understand German to feel the waves of anger and hatred. This kind of otherizing is, of course, obvious, but that does not mean it isn't effective. Nor do you have to be unintelligent or uneducated to respond. Strong feelings of antipathy tend to rule the mind, no matter how well educated we think we might be. The educated mind then gets used in service to the anger, providing rationalizations for why this anger is justified, reasonable, or even good. Well, he's honest. He says it like it is. 
He's bold, too. And he has my interest at heart. There really is a problem with those people. They are a threat to our way of life. Such kinds of justifications convince us that our hatred is just. Otherizing clue number two, name-calling and judgment. One of the clearest symptoms of otherization is name-calling. Gangs, sects, tribes, nations, religions, and political parties call those who don't agree with them names that are differentiating, humiliating, or vilifying. Name-calling has been used for millennia to disparage others with labels, which often stick. Christians and Muslims alike call those with different beliefs heretics, pagans, infidels. Any one of these single words could become a sentence of death. The communists called the capitalists blood-sucking bourgeoisie, while the capitalists called the communists reds or commies. Some of the names may not sound so bad in themselves. Commies, of course, is just a shortened form of communists. But when descriptive terms have been used for years with connotations of derision and hatred, the terms themselves become shortcuts to separation and anger. On the political party front, Crooked Hillary and Moscow Mitch were more modern examples of tying a leader to a disparaging label. The label may or may not contain objective truth, but if it is repeated often enough and laced with derision, it can separate the parties in escalating otherization. Another telltale sign of otherizing is shifting the focus of attack from policy to the character of the policy maker. A policy can, of course, be criticized without otherizing the party that created it. But if the character of the person proposing the policy is judged, or the character of the whole party supporting the policy is derided, this is altogether different. Here are some common examples of blanket put-downs of people or groups we disagree with. They're crazy. He's stupid. She's an idiot. They're a bunch of psychopaths. They're full of greed. In addition to the obvious put-down and judgment, inherent in these examples is a wider dismissal of the personal group as being way lower on the scale of sanity, intelligence, morality, or humanity. And once the sanity, intelligence, morality, or humanity of the other camp has been sufficiently lowered, it is no longer necessary to listen to what they say. Otherizing clue number three, Contempt. The politician builds a sense of grievance among his people by pointing the finger at what the other party or the minority scapegoats have done. What the other party is described as doing may be true, may be cherry-picked from past performance, may be exaggerated, or may be entirely made up. Any of these descriptions can then be juiced up with an otherizing dose of contempt. The psychologist and mathematician John Gottman was able to predict whether newlyweds would stay married by watching a three-minute video of their interactions. His predictions were right in an astonishing 94% of cases. The most common factor that indicated likely future divorce was contempt. Contempt showed in put-downs, in eye-rolling, and other easily discernible signs on the recorded videos.
Contempt, in Gottman's opinion, is like sulfuric acid to love. Rolling one's eyes might seem humorous, and to be fair, it can be innocuously funny. But in response to a sincere comment from another, it is usually the body language of disdain or scorn. When we roll our eyes upward, the other becomes lower than our line of vision. Contempt is to hold oneself above the other person, and therefore to consider the other as beneath oneself. I am higher, you are lower, is a characteristic of otherization. By designating the other as beneath us, we are excluding them from the community of kinship, and so from the natural openness of kindred compassion. Just as contempt in a marriage predicts divorce, contempt in politics spells divorce from real conversation. Contempt can be expressed in several different forms of superiority. For example, self-righteousness. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm morally superior to you. Condescension. I'm looking down at you from a superior intellectual height. Patronization. I'll try to explain it to you, you poor muddled thing. Derision. Compared to me, you are a piece of dirt. Negative gossip. Look what those idiots did. Such forms of superiority are regularly used by members of both political parties in the US. Of course, this is really admitted by the one who acts superior. Often, a superior attitude is not even recognized by the speaker as a put-down of the other. The ego, in its own interest, tends to disguise such self-knowledge. It just wouldn't feel good to admit to acting so obnoxiously. That being said, it is very easy for any of us, in politics or not, to fall into such forms of otherizing without realizing what we are doing. Otherizing clue number four. Absolutes and exaggerations. Most times, when we use the word never, we are exaggerating with an absolute, as in, you never care. Actually, you probably do care sometimes. What we really mean is, in my experience, you often don't seem to care. But isn't this just a way of speaking? Everyone knows you don't actually mean never. Yes. It is a way of speaking, but at the same time, this way of speaking creates divisive energy between them and us. As soon as anyone hears you say, you never, their defences go up, ready for battle. The reason for their defensiveness is that they've just been attacked through exaggerating their badness, and they feel it. On the positive side, Absolutes and exaggerations spice our languages with drama and humour. In effective speeches, key points may be remembered because they have been painted with creative exaggeration. Good stories are embellished with the exaggerated deeds of demons and heroes. Cartoons and burlesques illustrate life's quirks and absurdities. And in terms of our learning, an exaggerated imitation of our foibles may help us to recognize our blind spots, while deliberate exaggeration of an underused virtue can lead over time to the greater development of that quality. On the negative side, absolutes and exaggerations are used to accentuate divisions. To make their cases, politicians exaggerate the rightness of the view they support and exaggerate the wrongness of the view they fight against. 
These exaggerations can create black and white categories of right, wrong. Here are some examples of common words used as exaggerations to put down the other side and how we use them to make ourselves look good. All, as in, they're all racists. Implying, we're not racists. Always, as in, they always create divisions. Implying, by contrast, we don't create divisions. Every, as in, every time they are in power, the economy tanks. Implying, by contrast, the economy is good when we are in power. Only, as in, she cares only about herself. Implying, by contrast, I care about others. Absolutely, as in, he is absolutely wrong. Implying, by contrast, I'm right. Entire, as in, the entire institution is corrupt. Implying, by contrast, we're decent. Completely, as in, he completely misled us. Implying, by contrast, I wouldn't do that. Downright, as in, they're downright complicit in this. Implying, by contrast, we're clean. Whenever you hear someone using the word downright in a critical statement about you, you can know that they probably are saying, you are down and I am right. You've probably noticed that the four means of otherizing I've just described, overt hostility, name-calling and judgment, contempt, absolutes and exaggerations, are not unique to politicians. If you read the comments on left-wing and right-wing blogs, the political otherizations made by party followers are often much more extreme. And outside of politics, probably all of us otherize at times. All of us? Perhaps. Votes by linking to highly emotive issues. Advertisers often link their product to a strong emotion. The man who sees the ad of a beautiful woman sitting on the hood of a new car is quite aware that this woman is not going to improve visibility while driving, nor is she going to smooth the car's aerodynamic performance. But he is still more likely to buy the car. The advertiser's linking of an inanimate metal object to sexual desire works, amazingly, though few men would ever admit or even realise that the woman played any part whatsoever. The US Democratic Party did not support gay marriage until 2012, and then did support it. Historically, most members of the Republican Party consistently believed in greater access to abortion. Now there is a strong move in the other direction. I doubt that many people think that these politicians suddenly changed their opinions through a deep process of moral contemplation. They made a 180-degree turn because they recognised that public opinion had altered enough to translate into some voting advantages. And, like successful advertisers, these politicians also recognised the importance of linking themselves to highly emotive issues. The seeming battle is on policy. The winner is often the one who wins the emotional body of the electorate. Once an emotional issue has been chosen for voting advantage, the next task of the politician is to arm the emotional choice with extreme black-and-white thinking. Take the hot issue of abortion. 
Obviously, this is a complicated matter since the growing fetus is actually living inside another body. How can one determine the rights of each, especially if they are contradictory? The slogan for those who are more pro-abortion is pro-choice, implying that the other side does not honour a woman's body or a woman's right to choose. In short, is misogynistic. The slogan for those who are more anti-abortion is pro-life, implying that those on the other side are not only pro-death, but murderers to boot. There appears to be a complete impasse between these two extreme positions. Once positions become fixed into the emotional certainty of we're right, they're wrong, we're good, they're evil, our ability to think things through plummets. For example, in all the fights between the two sides on this issue, the discussion of when the fetus becomes a human being is either really discussed or else discounted because it is assumed to be known categorically. Yet the time when we become a human being is crucial to determining whether abortion can be deemed murder or not. For those who do not believe in soul, the argument is a biological one. At what point, from an organism of a few cells and no brain, to a fish-like creature with gills, to a being of just recognisable human form, does the organism become a human being? Some believe that the fetus can be said to be a human being only when it is capable of sustaining life outside its mother's womb, while others believe the biological marker to be somewhat earlier. For those who believe in soul, the question is a spiritual one. When does the soul first enter the body? Pretty well everyone agrees that the soul probably does not enter the sperm or ovum before they unite in conception. Otherwise, masturbation by a male would be murder, and our prisons are already pretty full. Also, if the sperm and ovum both had souls, that could take male-female identity issues to another level of complexity. Does the soul enter the body at the moment of conception? There is not a single reference in the Old Testament that would indicate this. The idea that the soul enters the body at conception is also not mentioned by Jesus or any of the New Testament writers. Because there is no biblical reference, the Catholic Church officially states that the time of ensoulment is unknown. At one point, the majority of Christians, following the teachings of two influential Christian saints, St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, believed that the soul enters the fetus at the time of quickening, when the mother first feels the baby kick at around four months. Why has this changed? Perhaps there are many reasons, but politics has certainly played its part. Different religions, politicians and social organisations have held different beliefs about the time of ensoulment, anywhere from the time of conception to the time of birth. Many of the beliefs are specific about the time after conception when ensoulment occurs. Zero days, 40 days, 120 days, 134 days, six months, nine months have all been put forward definitively by various religions and by social or political groups. In 1978, psychologist Dr. Helen Wambach in a series of documented group hypnosis sessions carried out over two years, hypnotized a total of 750 people, taking them back in time, it seemed, 
not only to before birth, but to the point of insolment. All 750 people were asked to fill in a questionnaire about their experiences, and the questions included, when did you experience your soul joining the fetus? Of the total, 89% said that their soul did not join with the fetus till after six months of pregnancy, and of these, 33% said that for them, insolment happened at birth. Studies like this tend to get criticised because it's not possible to prove that these pre-birth experiences are actual memories. But if they are not memories, we are still left with the surprising figure of 89% of subjects ending up with the belief that their insolment took place after six months of gestation. Most did not have these opinions before their hypnosis, and at no point in the hypnosis was any suggestion made about the time of insolment. I'm not saying that one should necessarily accept the views of these 89%, nor am I saying that we should necessarily follow any one of the contradictory religious points of view about insolment as absolute truth. What I would like to suggest is that we don't know. When we start from the humbler point of view of not knowing what the right answer is, there is the possibility of real conversation. But politicians do not often seek this kind of conversation. They tend to seek side-taking and battle. Impassioned side-takers are more likely to vote. Votes by establishing a strong identity. The more politicians otherize opposition and emotionalize issues, the more powerful the us and them, and the more we tend to identify with the us. For most US politicians, the most successful identification is to get supporters to think, I am a Democrat, or I am a Republican. At this point, policies may hardly matter anymore, and some will vote in allegiance with their party for the rest of their lives, even if policies change drastically. There's a big difference, of course, between saying, I am a Democrat, and I choose to vote Democratic at this time. The more we identify ourselves with a political party, the more we will tend to fit ourselves into whatever that party does, even if it is something that no longer suits our values. If we do not identify ourselves with a party, we may still decide to vote for a party as the better of two options, even if not everything suits our values. When we are not identified with a particular party, we have free choice in our decision. We are not caught in an automatic, this is who I am. The downside of identification with a party is that it reduces your intelligent discernment. If your very own self is identified with a political party, then a critique of your party feels like an attack on your very being. The other becomes the enemy and adrenalized anger easily follows. Which is why identity politics can be so dangerous. Votes by disguising whom the politician really serves. You know how race car drivers have ads written all over their driving suits, the size of the letters reflecting the amount of financial support received by the driver from the corporation being advertised? Well, suppose all politicians had to do the same, so it was publicly known who paid for their elections and with how much money. The largest corporations have enormous power in US politics and in the politics of all democracies. Not only do these businesses own most of the media, they also, to a greater or lesser extent, own most politicians. 
Since Citizens United, under US law, corporations can now contribute unlimited funds towards the election campaign advertisements of those politicians whom these corporations support. Even though this is so well known, at least on a general level, individual politicians would risk losing the trust of at least some of those who voted for them if they became transparent about their private deals with powerful corporations. Many measures that would be overwhelmingly popular among a politician's constituents do not happen simply because these politicians are more likely to try to please their corporate donors than they are their constituents. One long-term example is Medicare. Unlike any normal company that can negotiate prices based on the volume of products bought, Medicare is, by law, not allowed to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies to lower drug prices, even though it is the largest single user of pharmaceutical products in the US and could therefore massively lower drug costs. What this means, in effect, is that because of laws passed by the US Congress, the country's taxpayers are funding the pharmaceutical industry, even though the pharmaceutical industry has profit margins that dwarf those of the oil business. The public almost universally want drug prices and Medicare costs to go down, but no government, Republican or Democrat, has ever taken on the pharmaceutical lobby on this subject, even though they complain about Medicare costs. This is just one example of how large corporations control politicians' actions, even when these actions go against the people's needs and wishes. The pharmaceutical industry spent over $200 million lobbying politicians in 2018, and another $30 million on contributions to the election of the politicians who support them. Healthy Detachment, or Mindfulness when you are caught in the unpleasant divisiveness of party politics, it is still possible to detach yourself. Detachment is the ability and willingness to let go of preconceptions and see things from a broader perspective. Detachment sometimes gets a bad press through confusion with the aloof indifference. Detachment, in its best sense, does not mean being distant in the form of coldness does not involve being cut off or lacking in empathy. On the contrary, detachment fosters care and compassion. A visual analogy is to imagine two arguing parties of people divided by a partition. Let's say you are in one of these parties and you cannot see over the partition. You can only see your side of the situation and your point of view is partisan, adrenalized, hot, but if you could rise up, say, in the basket of a hot air balloon and view the scene from above, you would then envision a wider picture encompassing the various points of view. The partition would still be visible, of course, but it would no longer obstruct your view of the whole situation. With this more elevated, more detached view, you have a greater chance of being fair and compassionate to both yourself and to others. Detachment and compassion go together. Detachment and intelligent action also go together. When you can see both sides of an issue more clearly, your wider vision increases your ability to act smartly and effectively. Exercise. Rising above the us and them game. 
If you are feeling upset about an us and them situation, it could be a political situation or a personal one, this exercise can bring you peace of mind. The exercise requires your undivided attention. In a while, I'm going to be asking you to close your eyes, so please do not attempt this exercise while driving. It's great to do this exercise at a time when you know you will not be interrupted. The exercise takes about seven minutes. At any time, feel free to pause the recording. Please make sure you have a pen and paper or notebook ready and that you're sitting in a comfortable chair in a private space. You can pause this audio while you set yourself up. Okay, make sure you are comfortable in your chair. And now, rest your hands on your lap. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath in and then exhale. Another deep breath in and exhale. Deep breath in and out. Now, breathing naturally, relax your body. Feel your shoulders relax and drop down. As your arms relax, be aware of the weight of your hands on your thighs. Feel your legs relax. Be aware of the weight of your feet on the floor. Let your torso relax. Be aware of the sense of your body pressing down on the chair. Let the muscles in your face and neck relax. As your face relaxes, Allow your tongue to relax. Be aware of your tongue dropping to the floor of your mouth. In this more relaxed state, imagine a field with a partitioning wall right across it. You are standing on one side of this field with all the people who agree with you on the same side. On the other side of the partition are all the people who disagree with you, who disagree with you and your group. You cannot see over the partition, though you can hear people on the other side of the partition saying things you disagree with. You strongly argue your point of view, believing the other side is very wrong. Take a moment to be aware of how you feel in this situation. You can pause the audio for half a minute or so as you give yourself the space to feel this. Okay, in a moment I'm going to ask you to allow yourself to dissociate from your own point of view. 
To do this, you'll be imagining that you actually jump out of your own body, so to speak. Your body remains where it was, arguing away, while your mind's eye floats upwards till it is hovering at about 30 feet or 10 meters up. Take this position now. You're completely safe up here at 30 feet. In your mind's eye, you can see your body beneath you, arguing. But even though you can see yourself doing this, you're not emotionally involved. You observe yourself with kindness. From your new height, your whole perspective is changed. Looking down, you can see the partition between the two arguing groups. You can see that the two groups of people are stuck behind the partition and cannot really see each other's viewpoints or see a higher view. But you have a higher view. You can see both groups at once. You notice similarities. You recognize that at the most basic level, all the people on both sides of the partition want the same kinds of things, like happiness, kindness, a good living, security, appreciation. They all have families. They want the best for their families. They all like to laugh and to feel self-respect. You see yourself beneath you, and you too are similar in all these wishes. Be aware of how you feel as you see yourself and see these two groups with all their similar wishes and feelings. You can pause the audio as you do this. When you're ready and taking your higher point of view with you, allow your mind's eye, your point of awareness, to float downward gently until it joins your body once again. Only now you're changed because you're brought with you your vision of all the people on both sides being so similar in their needs, wishes, and humanity. Now, open your eyes. Write down your experience of what happened for you. How did it feel being behind the partition? And how did it feel to be free of the partition, holding a wider perspective? After you've completed writing your experience, that is the conclusion of this exercise. During the exercise, you may have found yourself, at least for a time, above the political fray. Not above in the sense of superior, above in the sense of seeing more clearly and with more compassion and kindness. By writing down your experience, you help ingrain this stance so that it becomes easier to take a higher perspective in the future. Thank you for listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. Episode 10 is scheduled to come out in two weeks, so subscribe now to hear Richard's conversation with Patty Holland, professor at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University School of Public Health. Patty's insights into the power of mindfulness will be a great way to kick off the new year.
If you enjoy this podcast, as we prepare to step into 2022, consider who else in your life might be interested as well. Send a quick text, pick up the phone to call, or shoot over an email to share it with a friend as a sweet New Year's gift. They can find all the ways to listen at superpowercuriosity.com. As always, if you have a comment or question for Richard, you can send an email or voice memo to superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. Till next time, stay curious. Stay curious.